Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Like, act like, and worship like Babylonians. The goal of this education program is complete conformity and assimilation to Babylon. And so the pressure to compromise their faith and their covenant identity would be strong in exile. So it's almost like Daniel and his three friends are covenant children who are away from home for the very first time. And because they're away from home, they are untethered from all of the external structures and systems and influences of home that would facilitate their faithfulness to obedience to God. All of those things are no longer around them, surrounding them as support structures. And so how will Daniel and his friends respond? Will they remain true and uncompromising to their convictions in a new and hostile environment? Or will they sell out to Babylon in the face of social pressure? Well, the reason this is important is we find ourselves as Christians today in a very similar situation. As cultural exiles, living in a world, living in a culture that has not as yet sending us to prison for our faith or threatening us threatening us with physical violence on a daily basis, but nevertheless, we find ourselves in a culture that is increasingly demanding our allegiance, our capitulation, and our conformity to its values and its vision. And so, how will you respond in the face of those kinds of social pressures? Will you continue to stand on biblical principles and convictions, or will you conform the world around you? Will you compromise Now, the surrounding pressure to sell out will expose what's actually in our hearts, in your heart and my heart. What comes out of us when we get squeezed? Well, as we look at the book of Daniel, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 21 this morning. And what we see in Daniel is him drawing lines in Babylon. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Daniel chapter 1. We've looked at the first seven verses already in a previous message. You can find that online. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 8 this morning and read through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. And our text can be found on page 429 and 430 in those paperback Bibles. And so when you find your place in Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, I'll invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. This is the word of God. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. 
As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, as we consider this morning how Daniel responds to these circumstances, the first thing we want to see is his devout resistance in verse 8. His devout resistance. Interestingly, as we observe him in exile, Daniel doesn't refuse to attend the Babylonian cultural courses that are assigned to the exiles that we read earlier in verse 4 in a previous message. He doesn't refuse to attend those classes. He doesn't outwardly resist even his name change to Belteshazzar that we read is given to him in verse 7. He doesn't resist that either, at least explicitly. Of course, it's not insignificant that when Daniel refers to himself throughout the rest of the book, he always refers to himself as Daniel rather than Belteshazzar. But we don't see him explicitly resisting that name change. Instead, he rejects the king's food and drink that had been assigned to the exiles in verse 5 earlier. So we read in verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. It might seem a bit surprising that Daniel is drawing lines in Babylon with food and drink. He doesn't draw the lines with the indoctrination program that he's enlisted in. He doesn't draw the lines at the claims of ownership that renaming would imply for him. Of all the things that Daniel could resist, he resists the meal plan in Babylon. Now, why would he do that? Well, it might help us to remember that dietary regulations formed a very important part of Jewish identity and ritual cleanness throughout Israel in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and even into present day. Kosher food preparation and kosher food consumption is extremely important to Orthodox Jews even unto today. We have to remember that throughout the Old Testament, a meal was crucial in forming Jewish identity in their participation of the Passover. Even still today, what we're going to participate in later in the service Food, a meal, forms an important part of our identity as Christians today. And so food is important. And we should remember that the Bible begins with a story of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who defile themselves by eating forbidden food, eating forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, and that decision plunged the human race into a state of sin and misery. So it's not like food is insignificant in the Bible. But we're not told explicitly why Daniel regards the king's food and the king's drink as something defiling. The Bible just doesn't tell us. It's possible that the king's food was unclean by Jewish standards, but the text doesn't explicitly tell us this. It's possible that this food had been sacrificed to idols, but the text doesn't specifically tell us this either. What we do know is that the sharing of food, and this was especially true in ancient times, but it's true today in ways that we probably underestimate, that the sharing of food both expresses and facilitates social bonding. It was actually part of um, ratifying a covenant in ancient times to share a meal together because it expresses and facilitates social bonding. But whatever the reason is for Daniel... 
with devout resistance, we see him drawing lines in Babylon. There are certain things that he will not do. He refuses to be conformed to the Babylonian culture. He refuses to have an increasing sense of dependence upon the Babylonian king for his well-being. And he does not permit his covenant identity as a child of Israel's God and king set apart by grace to be compromised. He will not allow his identity to be compromised. And so, we shouldn't be surprised to read that he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the king's drink. But I want you to pick up on something the text tells us. Daniel had to resolve to do this. There had to be something internal to Daniel that he would determine not to defile himself because the pressures to conform would be strong. And so he had to resolve to do this. And the truth is, is if you're going to resist capitulating to the world's ways, and if you're going to stay true to your identity as a Christian, set apart by grace, set apart by covenant grace and by the blood of Jesus your King, then you have to resolve. You have to be determined in the face of social pressure that there are lines you will not cross and there are things that you will not do in order to remain faithful to God and His Word. You have to resolve to do that. Even if, even if that means you're going to stand out, even if that means that you're going to appear strange to those around you. I mean, isn't, isn't that part of the pressure that the subject and Asher's experience feel? Everyone else is giving one answer and you're giving another. You feel pressure about not standing out. And there's pressure to conform. You're going to have to resolve not to do that in the world if you're going to remain faithful to God and His Word. There's going to be language that you will not use because you belong to Christ. There's going to be images that you will not look at because you belong to Christ. There's going to be things that you don't do, like cheating on tests in school, even if you knew you could get away with it, that you will not do because you belong to Christ. You're going to resolve not to take the Lord's name in vain. You're going to resolve not to treat Sunday as an ordinary day. Because it's the Lord's day and it's set apart for you. And you're going to honor that even if those around you don't honor that and even if it makes you look strange and different and set apart. There's going to be people that you will not date and there's going to be people that you will not marry because your faith in Jesus is central to how you live your life. And you're going to refrain from endorsing and celebrating sexually immoral relationships and marital unions that are contrary to the Scriptures, even in the face of great social pressure to conform because of what the Bible says. But at the same time, having said all that, you'll also avoid spreading the kind of hate and attacking insults that have become so common in our culture toward anyone who happens to disagree with us. Anyone who disagrees with you, you're going to refrain from that because you're going to be a person who speaks the truth but you're going to resolve to be a person who speaks the truth with love and in a tone of respect because you belong to Jesus. And so the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, are you practicing devout resistance in the face of cultural pressure to conform to the ways of the world while you're living as an exile? Or are you going to compromise? Are you going to resolve 
with devout resistance to remain faithful to God and His Word against whatever the culture is bringing to us? Or are you going to compromise because of the pressure? Are there areas in which you are compromising? You have to be honest with yourself. We all have to be honest with ourselves in that question. Where appropriate, we need to repent of those areas in which we're compromising in our behavior and in our thoughts. But secondly, we also need to notice that Daniel's devout resistance takes the form of a humble request in verses 8 through 14. Daniel's resistance takes the form of a humble request. Okay, so Daniel resolves not to defile himself, right? But he doesn't then organize an underground plot to overthrow the Babylonian government. He doesn't hatch a plan to burn the royal palace to the ground as a demonstration of of his resistance. He doesn't even display hostility or speak disrespectfully to his Babylonian captors, even though we might understand if he would do that. He doesn't do any of those things. Instead, in the second half of verse 8, this is what we read, Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. That's what he does. He resolves, and then he asks the chief of the eunuchs for an exception, an exemption. And so in this, we see that Daniel shows honor. Even to these Babylonian officials, he shows honor by respectfully asking for an exemption to the meal plan. And then we go on and read in verse 9 that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So that sounds like it's going to turn out well. But we then read in verse 10 that the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king. In other words, I serve Nebuchadnezzar. And I fear Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? And so you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, if we could summarize this, the chief of the eunuch says, Daniel, I like you, and I'd like to help you out. But if I permit this exemption for you, and you end up looking worse than all the others, that's my head. The king's going to take my head off. So... I can't do it. I'd like to help out, but I can't do it. And so Daniel, at this point, might just decide that he's going to go on a hunger strike. Right? He could just refuse to eat it because why should he care about the well-being of a Babylonian official who serves a government that abducted him from his homeland, took him away from everything he knows, took him away from his family and from his parents, and has made him to live as an exile? Why should he care? But Daniel takes a very different route than that. He goes to his direct supervisor, Not to the chief of the eunuchs, but we read in verse 11 that he goes to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then in verses 12 and 13, we see that he makes this humble request. This is what he says. He says to the steward, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables. The word there in the Hebrew is seeds. Let's be given seeds. Let's be given plants. Let's be given vegetables to eat and water to drink instead of the wine. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And then deal with your servants according to what you see. Just give us 10 days. And so in this test that Daniel is proposing, he's not only showing honor, he's also displaying wisdom as an exile in Babylon. Daniel shows honor and Daniel displays wisdom in proposing this test. Notice that Daniel is offering a solution that allows him to stand on his convictions while at the same time showing great sensitivity to the steward's situation. And he minimizes the risk involved for the steward. And this shows an enormous amount of care and concern 
for the official. Daniel is not adopting this us-against-them mentality as an exile. He's adopting a posture of I'm for holiness. I'm for holiness. And so he proposes really what's a win-win situation to the steward. And this wise plan wins over the steward, according to verse 14, where he reads, so he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. And in these ways, Daniel is serving as a model for us for living in exile. He is a person who stands firmly on his convictions, and yet his tone with others is respectful, meaning, and hostile. In his actions, he does not exaggerate the tensions that would typically exist. And he does not manifest a combative spirit that would make things worse. Instead, he seeks peace as much as possible. He's actually living out what Jeremiah the prophet had said earlier that the exiles should do. And that is to seek the peace and the welfare of the city in which they are going. So he manifests that. He, want, he stands on his convictions and yet is willing to seek peace as much as possible. So one of the things that we see here, one of the things that we need to remember in our own exile is that God cares about the issues that we stand for. He cares about what we're standing for. But he also cares about how we stand for it. It's not just that the ends justify the means. God has appointed certain ends for us, but he also has appointed the means for us. He cares about those means as well. And so it matters how we take a stand for things. I think an author named Elliot Clark offers us some wisdom here. He says this, he says, We do not open our mouth with hate, with arrogant condescension, or with brimstone on our breath. You're called to show honor to every single person, not just the people who deserve it, not just those who earn our respect, not just the ones who treat us agreeably, not just the politicians we vote for. As we face increasing opposition, we can either turn up the volume of our vitriol, or we can approach our enemies with gentleness and respect. And if we do, we'll have an incredible opportunity for the gospel. It matters how we stand for things. And there are multiple occasions in Scripture where we are called to respond to people, even those who oppose us, with gentleness, as Sydney shared with the kids this morning, and with respect. And let's remember that our primary calling as Christians, even in exile, is to love. It's to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor, including your enemy, as yourself. That means our call is to love, even in really difficult circumstances, and really with very adversarial people. Our call is to love. Daniel demonstrates here what that can look like. But in all of this, we also need to see that Daniel is exercising trust in God. He's trusting God in all of this. He asks for 10 days, and then he just lets God work. Just give me 10 days, and you can test your servants in 10 days and do what seems right to you. And it's because he's trusting in God and looking to God in all of this that he doesn't have to respond with hostility. He doesn't have to manifest a combative spirit toward others. He's trusting in God to work things out according to his plan. But there's one other thing that I think we need to see here in verses 11 through 14, and that is this. When we see Daniel taking this stand, chapter 1, he's not standing alone. His three friends are introduced right in the middle of this narrative. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are right in this test with him. 
That should remind us that it is very, very difficult to remain faithful in isolation. It's very difficult, if not near impossible, to remain faithful for isolated from any kind of support whatsoever. Going back to Ash's experiments that he conducted, isn't it interesting that what Ash found is that his subjects were much less likely to cave and conform to the group and give the wrong answer if just one other participant in the group was vocalizing the right one. Just one additional one. Steeled that person against conformity. So that just reminds us that we're stronger when we stand for godliness together. Don't try to do it by yourself, which means surround yourselves with Christians in the classroom. Surround yourself with a network of Christian friends at school, whether you're a grade schooler, a middle schooler, a high schooler, or a college student. It also means all of us need to be sensitive to seek out a community of faith in the local church so that we can support one another. Because the truth is that we stand for godliness better when we're together. Daniel demonstrates this for us. But we then learn of the outcome of, for Daniel and his three friends when we read about the favorable results in verses 15 through 21. Favorable results. Let's listen again to the text. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. So in other words, the results for Daniel and his friends is that they were better off after the 10 days. They were better off without the king's food. Now we have to be careful here. The point here in the text is not to give us a recommended dietary intake of vegetables or seeds or plants and water while we need to abstain from meat and alcohol, as some misguided interpreters have suggested is the point of the text. That is not the point of the text. Now, let me say, you might decide to adopt that kind of dietary intake. Feel free to do that. You might be healthier if you do do that, but don't do it believing that God prescribes that in His Word in Daniel chapter 1 for everybody. And don't believe at all that somehow what we have here in Daniel chapter 1 is some kind of divinely inspired weight loss plan. And how could you possibly read that here? The young men were fatter in flesh at the end of the 10 days, not skinnier. It's not a dietary intake plan. It's certainly not a divine weight loss plan at all. The main point here isn't about what foods we should be eating and what foods we shouldn't be eating as Christians today. That's not the point. So what is the point then? Well, this is the key point. The key point is about the blessing of God resting upon His people who remain faithfully committed to Him in exile. That is the point. That the blessing of God rests upon those who remain faithfully committed to Him in the face of cultural pressure to conform to the world. That is the point. That's the intended takeaway for Daniel's first original readers, and that's the intended takeaway for us today. It's not a diet plan. The favorable results are further highlighted as we continue to read in verses 17 through 20. We read this. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now this reference to visions and dreams is going to come up again in subsequent chapters in the book of Daniel. Now at the end of the time, now this refers here not to the end of the 10 days, 
This refers to the period of time of their training, of their indoctrination. Remember, they were placed in a three-year educational program, the end of which they were to be brought before the king. And so now what we're reading here is at the end of that time, at the end of the three years, not at the end of the ten days, at the end of the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. And the king spoke with them. And uh, you can follow here along on the screen. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And so for these four young exiles from Judah are flourishing in Babylon. They're surpassing everyone else in wisdom and understanding. Here's a challenging implication of that for us. Daniel and his three friends are flourishing in Babylon, which means that we need to stop blaming external forces and circumstances for our failure to remain faithful to God in our circumstances. We have to stop blaming all these external forces around us. It is true that we are stronger when we stand together. But the truth here is that what Daniel and his friends teach us is that it is possible to remain undefiled and it is possible even to thrive spiritually in the most difficult of circumstances if you're committed to remaining faithful to the Lord. Let me say that one more time. It is possible to remain undefiled and to thrive spiritually in the most difficult of environments if you resolve to remain faithful to the Lord. You can't just blame these external factors. Daniel and his friends do it. And that's true in godless classrooms. You can do that. That's true in depraved halls of government. That's true in very difficult work environments that you find yourself in. You can remain undefiled and thrive spiritually if by grace you commit to remaining faithful to the Lord and following Him. But it is by grace. Because the key thing in the story is not about Daniel's faithfulness to God, it's about God's faithfulness to Daniel and his friends. Notice that we're told that God gave favor and compassion when Daniel went to the chief of the eunuchs. It's God who gave them wisdom and understanding. This is about God's grace. Daniel and his friends thrive not because they dedicated themselves and were good students in the Babylonian cultural courses that they took. They're filled with wisdom and understanding because of God's faithfulness to them and His grace toward them. It's God who is faithful here. And so our calling is to simply be faithful to the Lord in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, regardless of how difficult those circumstances might be, in exile, regardless of how difficult our culture may be making those things for us. We are to remain faithful And as we remain faithful, we can expect to be met with sufficient grace and blessing from the Lord. Now, we have to be very careful here, though, as well, that we shouldn't automatically define the blessing of God as meaning that we will be delivered from the pressure of exile. It doesn't mean that we will enjoy endless promotion in the world or whatever we happen to be doing in the world. It doesn't mean that. It certainly doesn't mean that we should expect to escape all hardship and suffering in life. The rest of the book of Daniel shows us that that clearly is not the case. But we can expect the blessing of God. And the ultimate blessing that God holds out to us is Himself. Fellowship with Him. 
tasting of His grace and His goodness and the sufficiency of His daily provision for us, even in the face of very difficult circumstances. We can know that that blessing rests upon us, and we can be faithful to Him in that. I think Brian Chappell offers us some words of wisdom here when he writes this. The rewards of holiness are guaranteed. Hear that part of it. The rewards of holiness are guaranteed, but they are not always immediate, discernible, or even present in this life. And so the question we face, the matter of faith we are being called to consider, is whether the eternal rewards are enough. I will remain faithful to the Lord for the sake of the Lord. Daniel's ultimate motivation here is not excelling in the eyes of the Babylonians. His ultimate motivation is love for God. And that has to be your motivation and my motivation as well. We love God. And our identity is to live as his child, regardless of what pressures that brings our way in the world. And so out of this love for God, we see Daniel resisting assimilation with the culture. He stays grounded in his covenant identity, and ultimately he remains loyal to God as his king and as his Lord. And this faithfulness that we see here in the book of Daniel is set before us as something to be imitated. It is something to be imitated as we live in exile. But if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're going to be honest, we have to admit that we're not as faithful as Daniel. That there are ways that we have compromised with the culture. There are ways that we've sold out to the world. And there are ways that we have been defiled by sin in our lives. We have to acknowledge that. But when we acknowledge that, we then are ready to embrace the good news that even though that's true of us, There is a greater Daniel. Now, we're not called simply to imitate, although we are because he's even more faithful than Daniel, but we have a greater Daniel who saves us from our defilement. He saves us from our exile. He secures our way back to our heavenly home. And he is our true reward. And Daniel has to learn this as well. I mean, consider that The chapter ends in verse 21 by telling us that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Why does it tell us that? Because Daniel's faithfulness doesn't end his exile. We have no reason to believe that Daniel ever makes his way back home because he needs to know what we need to know, and that is that our true home and our true reward is not the things of this life, but come in the next age. And Jesus is the greater Daniel who secures our way to our heavenly home. He ends our exile And he earns our inheritance in glory. And he's a greater Daniel because, notice that Daniel was taken away into exile unwillingly. Daniel didn't choose to do that, but Jesus left his home in glory to step into earth. And Daniel was found faithful in the face of temptation in Babylon. But Jesus was found faithful in the face of temptation against the devil himself. And he was found faithful in keeping the entire law, never once yielded to temptation, And he submitted to the Father's will for him, even unto death, and even unto death on a cross, in order to redeem us from our own defilement. And while Daniel was exalted in Babylon for his faithfulness, Jesus is exalted for his faithfulness to the right hand of God the Father, where he's interceding for his people, and where he's been given the name above all names. And so while, yes, we might strive to imitate Daniel, and we might strive to imitate the greater Daniel, who is Jesus, we worship the greater Daniel who is Jesus Christ. And so the way the gospel 
It's found here in Daniel chapter 1. I think it's captured well by Ian Duguid in his commentary when he says, A Savior has come to deliver compromised saints like us. Our salvation rests not on our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but our salvation rests rather on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus has provided in our place. The offering of himself. And so we ought to strive to be faithful to God with everything in our hearts. So let us do that. Let us strive to be faithful to the Lord who has called us with everything in our hearts, but let us do so rejoicing that our salvation does not rest upon our faithfulness to him, but it rests upon our Savior's faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Lord, you do call us to be holy as you are holy. And it is to you that we bring our humble request this morning to give us grace that we would resolve to pursue holiness that you would renew that resolve even today, that we would resist the temptations to compromise the truth out of fear or out of selfishness, and that we would resist conforming to the culture and we would instead conform to your word and that you would be faithful to your work to conform us to your son. And for all the ways we fall short of this holiness, forgive us even as we thank you for Jesus who has rescued us from our defilements by remaining undefiled and by shedding his blood to cover our guilt. And may our gratitude spur us on to pursue holiness with greater and greater resolve out of love for you, knowing that you have secured for us favorable results and glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.